we knew right away that we had to continue to stand by their side. And so really the resettlement is the short game, like actually coming over to the United States, though chaotic and painful um, and full of dismay, that was that's just the beginning. Now they're in the United States navigating systems and trying to go back to that unlimited potential that they had where they were safe and in a country where they understood how to climb the ladder. Welcome to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. The episode you're about to hear today started months ago when I met this amazing group of women, soldiers actually, for a story I was writing for Politico magazine. In Afghanistan, a country where you probably know women have limited rights, there was actually this covert unit of elite female soldiers known as the Female Tactical Platoon. The platoon was created by the U.S. military so that Afghan women could accompany special operations forces on high-risk nighttime missions targeting Taliban and ISIS leaders. The platoon members' purpose was to interview and search women and children, a job that male soldiers really couldn't do in a Muslim country. In the decade that the platoon existed, the women conducted around 2,000 missions. It was a phenomenal experience of just a really unique sisterhood of getting to be these women working on the front lines in positions that you only dream of. Um, you hear a lot about the brotherhood of combat and war, and it's, I would say, almost even tighter being such a unique group. That's a U.S. Army captain we're calling Ellie. She worked alongside the platoon members in Afghanistan. We're not using her real name here because she's still on active duty and isn't authorized to speak on the record. But like her fellow service members, Ellie grew very close to the Afghan platoon members. And then last year, as U.S. troops were leaving the country, they started getting alarming messages from their old friends. Hey, sisters, what, are, what should we do if the U.S. leaves? Like, we are in extreme danger. The Taliban will target us. And these women did not want to leave their country. They absolutely loved their jobs, loved being able to fight for peace and security of not just Afghanistan, but for the whole world. And were extremely proud of it, but also knew the dangers that they would be facing if the U.S. withdrew. A Green Beret officer who served alongside the platoon members told me that if they were captured, they would be killed because they were an affront to everything the Taliban stood for. So when Kabul fell to the Taliban last August, much faster than anyone had expected, Ellie and a handful of other U.S. veterans moved heaven and earth to get the platoon members out of Afghanistan. We had a wild group chat of American women and Afghan women just going 24-7 to try to, to follow these women's journey as they were evacuating and getting onto flights, having no idea where they would be going next. Somewhat miraculously, 40 platoon members and about 100 of their family members got out of Afghanistan. But that was not the end of the story. It was just the beginning. The platoon members were eventually sent to live in 26 different American cities. And Ellie and her fellow soldiers realized that these women needed much more help than they were getting. We saw ourselves slowly burning out <laughs> as we tried to be supportive to these women and decided that we really needed to expand the support and match each each of the 40, 40 some women that were evacuating with a US service member mentor who could directly answer their questions and send the messages of support and even care packages and just a reassurance that no matter where they were going, even though they had absolutely unpredictable futures at the moment that we were gonna stand by their side 
The Americans started an organization called Sisters of Service to help the platoon members. They were now scattered around the country, learning English, working at fast food restaurants and coffee shops. I got to visit a half dozen of them in three different cities. And when I interviewed them through an interpreter, it was clear that the women were struggling and sometimes failing to find a new purpose that could begin to match their old one. Could you ask them, please, what they miss about their jobs? Everything. One thing I learned right away in this reporting is just how incredibly baffling and incoherent our refugee resettlement process is. There are 76,000 Afghan refugees here now, and most of them don't have an Ellie or anyone who can help get things translated or explain how things work in America or make you just feel a little less confused and alone. Unfortunately, the need to welcome refugees from lots of places, including from Ukraine, shows no signs of slowing. So today on the show, Ellie and I are talking about how Americans and people in other host countries could really help the refugees arriving on our shores. And we're joined by someone who knows the answers from personal experience. My name is uh, Luma Mufla, and I'm CEO and founder of the Fuji's family. I started this work uh, back in 2004 as a pickup soccer game. Um, I'm originally from the Middle East, born and raised in Jordan, um, and I came to the United States when I was 18 and applied for political asylum at the age of 22. Luma ended up starting two schools for refugee kids in Georgia and Ohio, and she has learned what actually helps and what doesn't. Stay with us. I'd love to start by asking, what do you wish more people understood about the refugee experience and the U.S. resettlement process? Is there one thing that you wish people understood better? You're only limiting me to one thing. But <laughs> How about a hundred things? It's like so many things. Um, the resettlement part is the easier part, the getting here in some ways, because the constant loneliness and identity and trying to figure out if you fit in or if people want you, and the compounded with survivor's guilt is never ending. But like what I wish uh, people understood uh, like about refugees is that their experience um, makes them stronger. You know, you think about people, about having to uproot and being forced from their countries and witness like horrific violence that none of us in our lifetime will ever see. And then they're coming to a new country and you need a certain mindset to be able to go through your day. And all refugees have that. So for me, it'd be like seeing the refugees in our community as assets, not deficits. This is a lesson Luma herself learned at an early age. Her mom's family had fled Syria in the 60s to neighboring Jordan. By the time Luma was born, the family had reestablished itself, but the memory of being a refugee was still vivid for her relatives. And my grandmother never wanted us to forget that that was part of our history and our identity. And so at a very young age, I was eight, uh, when she took me to my first refugee camp. It was a Palestinian one on the outskirts of Amman. Um, I didn't know what to expect. And she was going to go visit with some of the women in the camp. So she told me, you know, go play with the kids and don't come back um, until you've done so. Um, and I was resistant. Like, I, I thought the kids were 
less than I was. Uh, I had nothing in common with them, but my grandmother's very firm. And so I, I did, I went out, walked around the camp and uh, ended up joining a soccer game. A couple hours later, you know, such a good time, came back out with my grandmother and <clears throat> was trying to like impress her about like what I had done. And then I said, uh, it's a phrase in Arabic, I said, haram on them. Um, and using the word haram meaning poor them, that we should feel sorry for them. And she took the word and, and flipped it and said haram on us, which means that we were sinning. And you know, she said something that still uh, sticks in my head, that we should believe in them, not feel sorry for them. That's a really important distinction. It's natural to feel sorry for refugees, but maybe that's not the most helpful response. And it's probably not how we would want other people to feel if we were the ones fleeing our homeland. The system like strips people of their dignity and doesn't empower them and doesn't celebrate them. You know, we're seeing like on the borders of Poland, like groups greeting with strollers and food and starting things as simple as ballet classes and listening to the symphony to get people's mind off what's going on. And here, at our southern border, we put people in cages. I just think there's a better way to do it. Well, for one thing, it might feature some kind of clear roadmap for seeking legal residency, one that did not involve getting in line behind 400,000 other people or spending thousands of dollars on lawyers. I have to tell you, I tried mightily to understand what the platoon members' legal options were for staying here past the two years they've been granted as refugees. I talked to lawyers and advocates and congressional staffers, and I mean, I just could not get a straight answer. Because it's not logical. Like, yeah. there's nothing <laughs> logical about the process. And it varies from caseworker to caseworker, from resettlement agency to resettlement agency. The U.S. government contracts with nine different resettlement agencies. Some are religiously affiliated, some are not, and they're all overwhelmed right now. Nearly a third of their offices closed down under the Trump administration as the number of refugees allowed into the U.S. was severely limited. But it's these caseworkers who are supposed to help refugees find apartments and start new lives. The big pieces, too, is issuing a social security card and an employment card, um, which is crucial to them getting these jobs or starting to integrate in communities and being successful. And that's one of the, the biggest issues we faced is we just had today one of the women's sisters get her employment card after being here for months and not being able to join English classes or apply for jobs or do anything and just, just waiting in limbo for the system to figure out. And, yeah, I, and yeah. I think that's what's so frustrating is that people get lost in the complexity of the systems and the bureaucracy and what should happen and forget that there's human beings behind this process. Like, it's it's very simple to just treat someone humanely, maybe translate what the process could be like in their language or or break it down on a larger scale or just listen to them um, and let them be a part of the solution. Like, there's Afghan lawyers that have come into the country that could easily get pulled into the solutions yeah. here. Like these, these are people with skills that we've brought into the United States. So, so why not let them be a part of the solution as well? In 1997, Luma became a refugee herself, fleeing her country because of the persecution she faced there as a gay woman. So I knew at a very early age that I would not be able to live in Jordan. The last semester of college, I, I 
visited with a lawyer and he walked me through my options and um, asylum was one of them. The law had just changed. Um, Janet Reno and the Clinton administration had just added sexual orientation as it's part of a social group. So I could apply uh, for asylum based on a membership of a social group. I went to Smith College. All my friends there started researching. We assembled the entire file uh, with, with the lawyer's office. So I had a lot of access and privilege in doing that. And I spoke English fluently. And it was the hardest thing I ever had to go through. And I had to relive some of the things that happened in Jordan that I did not want to relive over and over again. Uh, you have to justify that your life is worth it. Um, and then I had to wait 30 days to get that letter. <clears throat> it was like the happiest and saddest day of my life. You know, happiest because I had my freedom, but saddest because I had lost everything. My country, my citizenship, my family, all in that same moment. You know, you had you had your own sisters of service in a way, mm -hmm. and uh, and you needed all of that support. Yep. Yeah, and the days after, I mean, they were the ones that dragged me out of bed and made sure I went to work, and you know, like I needed like simple things, so I could just like get up every day and know that there was a future and hope, because it's so like dark during those moments. Um, I wouldn't have done it without them. Right now, a lot of the refugees who make it in America do it by sheer grit, and because average Americans have stepped into the gap to help. Ellie, what is one thing the platoon members really needed that was available to most of them? Was there anything? I think what was very encouraging was how many volunteers did show up and wanted mm -hmm. to come on these bases and do anything from just sorting the loads of donations they would get and delivering them to the to the Afghans that had recently arrived to doing ad hoc stand-up English classes um, or taking them to a map and showing them where they were and kind of speaking through some of their options because that was missing. Like that logistical government-placed system of explaining rights and processes was not there. And so it was the volunteers stepping in to fill those voids. As these women started to resettle in cities across the United States, we were lucky enough to have such a strong military network that we would know someone in Salt Lake City or up in Anchorage, Alaska, or in DC, and could start reaching out to our networks and say, hey, we've got this incredible female that just resettled. And she needs local support. Like, can you show up? And people would. And they would come over and um, eat meals with them, which which goes miles to just let hmm. that these people who've recently been arrived and feeling so helpless get to so show some agency and serve someone else um, while hmm. also receiving aid. It's interesting because I have like a little bit of an outsider perspective. Having grown up in Jordan, we always said the American government was inefficient and not good, but the American people are good people and will always step up. We've tried signing up here uh, for a family and we still have yet to get a call back. And there are families I know who are in hotel rooms right now that haven't been resettled in an apartment yet that could use someone to go over, um, share a meal, go shopping, play some cards, like anything. 
in some ways, we kind of need like the Airbnb of connecting people. Hmm. Um, That's a great and, and idea. Taking out this like bureaucracy. It's amazing to see how much kindness and generosity can help fill the cracks left by the system. But it would be even better if the cracks were not so big. In my story for Politico, I described how Ellie and her fellow army officers helped a platoon member named Nahid get in touch with the owner of a Chick-fil-A in Pittsburgh. This owner is just an incredible force. She spent hours talking to Nahid using the translation apps on their phones, and then she hired her and her brother and sister on the spot, and they've worked there for the past four months. This owner has now reached out to half a dozen other Chick-fil-A owners around the country to encourage them to hire more platoon members, which is all great, but it only works if the women have their social security cards and work authorization papers, to which they are legally entitled. One of the other women, Nafisa, her papers got lost in the system for months. And so that was an extremely frustrating time. We found a conference she was able to go to. Um, it was actually a space conference in D.C., which was a pretty incredible experience for her. After telling her story there, she was offered a flight to the moon, <laughs> but still couldn't. Can't get a Social Security card, but <laughs> Correct. how about the moon? Correct. <laughs> This was a well-meaning, off-the-cuff invitation from a former astronaut with connections, and it sounds pretty awesome, but going to the moon is not what Nafisa needs most right now. When we come back, we're going to hear from Luma and Ellie about what we can all do right now here on Earth. We're back with Ellie, the U.S. Army captain who's helping to resettle a platoon of Afghan female soldiers that she served alongside and Luma Mufflet, founder and CEO of Fuji Families. In 2004, Luma was on her way to a Middle Eastern grocery store outside of Atlanta when she took a wrong turn. And on my way back to my apartment, I missed my turn. And so I had to U-turn into this apartment complex. Um, and outside, I saw these boys playing soccer. They were playing with rocks set up as goals um, and a really raggedy soccer ball. It reminded me of home of the way I grew up playing soccer with my cousins and brothers. Um, I'd been coaching club soccer in, in the Atlanta area, and so I had some soccer balls in my trunk. Um, I pulled one out. Um, the boys saw it, rushed me. They wanted the ball. I wanted to play. We haggled. <laughs> Perfect trade. Um, and so I ended up playing. And the original group of boys I played with were from uh, South Sudan, Liberia, and Afghanistan. She turned the pickup game into an official team, which grew and grew. And while coaching, she realized how many of her players were falling behind in their education. They'd been placed in grades based on their age, not taking into consideration that some of them still didn't even know the English alphabet. I, I just couldn't reconcile that. Like, education is supposed to be the great equalizer. America is the place you're supposed to be able to build yourself up if you work hard enough. But how are you supposed to build yourself up if you don't have access to what you need? Um, and so kids that have been in the country two to three years couldn't read a paragraph. Um, and so end up starting a school uh, for them. So tell us about the school. When I try to describe it, I say it's military meets Montessori. No, it's a lot of uh, rules, uh, high expectations, and community. That's the military aspect. Like, you never leave anyone behind. Um, and Montessori is meeting kids at their level and waiting till they master and then moving up, not just having to rush through 
because the clock says you have to get through it. That's really cool. And that's not easy. I mean, I assume that in a way for a lot of refugee kids and, and children of refugees that soccer is like one thing a lot of them have experience either watching or playing. So yeah. when everything else is strange and they have no mastery, yeah. <laughs> there's this thing. Is that right? I, there's this thing at the end of the day where you get to go out and play and it's familiar and it has positive memories of home. In some ways, it's the easiest way to bring someone in. That and music, you know, like hmm. Michael Jackson just brings everybody together because <laughs> most of us grew up <laughs> listening to him, right? Oh, that's cool. Um, and so what, is, what are these safe ways to bring people in? So there's music, there's sports, there's food. Food is um, common, yeah. And then they're not relying. Like in soccer, yeah, there's a coach, but you're relying on your own skills and your own talent. And right. we need to give space to allow people to be givers, not receivers. Mm -hmm. Because if it's always receiving, then they feel they have no agency or no say. Mm -hmm. And that's just not a good, healthy dynamic to have. That's a really important insight and something I watched Ellie do over and over again. Instead of just asking how we can help refugees, maybe ask, how can we make space for them to reclaim some control? Maybe to give advice instead of just receiving it or to learn from each other. We've just started doing weekly Zoom calls with, with our group of women and kind of bringing different individuals, mostly Afghan refugees, but many that have lived here for a long time, to teach simple skills like digital literacy mm -hmm. um, or finances or taxes or Finances, bills. yep. <laughs> and it's, it's so fun to watch yeah. the interactions happening where they're eager to ask questions and learn and get involved and bring up examples of their, their utility bill that was super high because of the, the heat that they put on and, yeah. and just kind of learn together through the shared experience of of trying to figure out how to live in America. Yeah. Hmm. Did you guys teach them how to use a dishwasher? Because that's always been the horror story. That we <laughs> a dishwasher hear. and a dishwasher the oven. Dishwasher even. and the oven. Yep. Um, when I went over to visit one of the women and she was so excited to cook a frozen pizza, um, we cheered the whole way through the process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think um, one of the things that really struck me was there were times where we were just hanging out or going running or whatever, and we didn't have interpreters. And you would just continually speak to them, like using, you know, pretty simple words, but not talking down to them. I don't know, it was striking. And it reminds me how much depends on relationship, right? And mm -hmm. there's a huge barrier to relationship when you don't speak the same language, but you are evidence that you can still have rapport and connection with people even before they're learning English. Yeah, absolutely. I would say it is daunting, right, to speak to someone that isn't going to understand every word that comes out of your mouth. And that's something we've worked through with the various mentors in their one-on-one -on -one matching is that some of these women don't have any English skills and they're communicating over WhatsApp, which is very difficult <laughs> to do. Yeah. But you can send a video of your your child playing with a toy and they can send one back of their child. Like there's still so many human experiences that you can connect through. It was amazing how much communication was happening. Um, yeah, over photos and emoji, a lot of emoji. And, <laughs> so many and, emojis. And so many. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, just, you know, it, it felt like you were understanding each other 
even though like I don't know how um but uh, <laughs> but it was beautiful to see um and I remember you saying that to me that that's that's what people need right they need someone to have dinner with them or you know show them a picture of their kids and vice versa it's that human to human connection that is so powerful so if we have a new student that enrolls in our school, uh, a member of our staff, so usually the soccer coach or, or the school leader will go visit the family. So we go to them on their turf in some place they feel familiar and we answer any questions they have. We usually share tea or a meal and then invite them into the school. So when they walk into the school, there is a familiar face that is there for them. If you were coming into a completely new environment, what would you want? And you would want that familiar face or at least someone that you've spoken to that understands you or at least knows your kid. Um, and then like for the kid, when the kid comes in school, we explain everything. Our older students will do it. We match each kid up with like a big brother or big sister, um, someone that is kind of like their buddy, their first friend at school. Um, mm. And it's easy to talk about it when you've done it, right? Like because the system in America is very different than abroad. Hmm. So listening to you both, it seems like what people can do to help is going to depend on the person, right? Um, what are the skills and resources they have access to? For some people, it's going to be donating money to one of these resettlement agencies. For other people, it might be calling their member of Congress and asking them to reform our refugee resettlement system or maybe hiring one of these people to work at their Chick-fil-A. One, one fun story kind of similar to that Chick-fil-A is that one of our Afghan women in Chicago wanted to expand her circle. She was just walking everywhere she could and she wanted to see more of the city, didn't quite understand the bus system yet and wanted to get a bicycle. And her mentor, she's like, that's a great idea. Like maybe go look at a bike shop and we can talk about it. And she had pretty broken English, but still confidently went to this bike shop and asked the owners, how long do I need to volunteer here to get a free bicycle? <laughs> and it was just so confident about finding your own solution and working with this organization that they're like, well, I guess a month <laughs> and she has a bicycle. Really? And so just finding well, and she unique earned it, ways. Right? Like, she, she, earned she, it, can, right? she can fix yeah. bikes probably better than, than anyone I know yep. now from, from just hanging out in the shop and understanding that you don't need English to connect with people necessarily. She learned English from being there. Um, and there's just so so many creative, unique ways to, to meet the people in your community, support them in a way that empowers them and brings them into the fold of the community and recognize that, that they can be there and that you can celebrate little wins and still strive to make a better system at the same time. We know... The Biden administration recently announced that uh, the U.S. would uh, accept something like 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. Remember, we just accepted 76,000 Afghan refugees, and our system is totally overwhelmed. Ellie, if you could ask everyone listening who might want to do one thing to be helpful to these uh, military veterans, elite soldiers trained by special operations um, who are now in, these are women who are in the United States trying to reinvent themselves, what would you ask them to do? Meet these women, learn from these women and their incredible experiences. Uh, let your daughters and sons be motivated by them. Like they, they were special operators in Afghanistan. They're absolutely incredible role models. 
Um, and they live in our communities all across the United States. So reach out to us and we'll connect you. You can get them jobs. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but also just, just recognize where refugees in your community are coming from. And then to specifically help these women advocate for them in front of Congress to, to pass the Afghan Adjustment Act, which would relieve our current backlogged asylum process and give them a direct line to a green card. Because that is what keeps them up at night the most, is, is living in this legal limbo. I mean, it's don't be complacent. Do what you can. Like, you don't have to solve the entire problem, right? But, like, look at what you can do. Everything from do you need someone to work for you or do you need um, someone to get in some hours so you can give them a bike? You know, like, think about what you can do. Do you know how to teach English? Do you know how to sit down and have a meal with someone? And I would say it's okay to be uncomfortable, right? Like, this isn't about your comfort. Mm. It is about making other people comfortable. So you may have to get uncomfortable for a bit. Ellie, what are you hearing? What's some of the latest dispatches that you've gotten from the Afghan women? Last night, we just did a, one of our digital literacy was email accounts and making emails. So I have about 15 new emails in my inbox. Oh, nice. <laughs> successful. Their first, that was successful, <laughs> yes. Um, so that was a fun, simple skill learning building that we did. And we had one, one Afghan woman in Arizona just graduate a pretty <clears throat> intensive, immersive global education program and mm-hmm. is looking to fully enroll at ASU for... Oh, that's great. Uh, a pretty difficult engineering program because she wants to be a fighter pilot. That's awesome. So she's crushing it, (laughs) which is fun to hear. Thank you to Ellie and Luma for sharing their stories and wisdom with us. To learn more about the American and Afghan female soldiers and see pretty amazing pictures of them, check out my Politico story about the female tactical platoon. To learn how to be helpful to those women right now, go to sistersofservice.org. And to find out more about Luma and her schools, check out fujisfamily.org and Luma's new book, Learning America. We'll put all those links in the show notes, of course. Do you have a problem that needs solving? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. And we might have you on the show. And if you like what you heard today, please give us a rating and a review and tell a friend. That helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson produces the show. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Charles Duhigg created this show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>